This is Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers, brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now here is your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Reverend Jackie Lewis is the pastor of one of the most diverse congregations in the United States, the Middle Collegiate Church in New York City in Manhattan. She grew up not too far from the church I serve here in Chicago uh, at a time when that neighborhood itself was going through a lot of change and was quite diverse and had a formative experience at the Seventh Presbyterian Church when she was a young person. She carries some of those lessons with her to Middle Collegiate, but learned all sorts of other things along the way. She's a fantastic preacher and a deep thinker, and I'm very happy to share this interview with you. Here she is, Reverend Jackie Lewis. Let's begin, Jackie, with uh, just trying to set the context. You're the senior minister at the Middle Collegiate Church in New York City. Can you tell me a bit about that congregation and and how you wound up in that pulpit? Matt, it's so good to be with you on the call. Middle Church is part of the oldest continuous Protestant church in North America. People came uh, down the Hudson River from the Netherlands to trap furs with the, the First Nation peoples here, and they decided to have worship at the fort down at wall street and so we've been worshiping since 1628 matt 1628 that's a long time that's a long time we were chartered in 1682 and the king of england uh, gave us permission to keep our church and our land which is to say that this church is older than the country and older than the constitution so it's pretty old um But the congregation, my church, middle church, is, to me, if there's a heaven, it it looks like this. It's old people and young people and toddlers and babies. It's uh, Latino people, African-American people, white folks, and um, and Asian folks. It looks like the UN. Uh, There are atheists who worship here because they like the music. There are Jews here who come and take communion on Sunday because they feel like it's part of their Seder experience. It is an amazing space, and I'm really blessed to be the pastor. Is that diversity something that obviously you've had to sustain it if it wasn't something that was created under your leadership? Was it something you inherited, or has the congregation changed while you've been there? My predecessor, uh, Gordon Drott, came in 1985 to pastor a church of about 21 old Polish ladies, he says. And uh, the Collegiate Church, you know, we're, we're on five campuses. So the partnership between Marble, uh, Fort Washington, West End, and also um, Intersections International now, kind of a beautiful uh, international peacemaking organization. We keep each other afloat is what I want to say. So when Gordon only had 21 members, the, the larger church kept the doors open, and he grew it uh, through a, a message of love, and welcome. Um, this was in the 80s, so lots of funerals for people dying from HIV/AIDS. Lots of artists coming in out of the door. Started a gospel choir so the neighborhood could come and sing. And that we were fully biracial congregation um, when when Gordon retired. I think we've been really intentional to just keep opening the doors wider and wider, and to do worship uh, that is really 
um, multicultural in nature. And so I think we've uh, even increased our diversity in these last 12 years. Is the multicultural worship that you do, is it blended worship so that there are different traditions, different styles of music, I'm thinking in particular, in, the, in one service? Or do you have separate services, like a service that has gospel music and a service that's doing Western kind of canonical classical music? We actually uh, call our worship a celebration. This is Gordon's big, um, every Sunday's an Easter. Mm. And it really is a big party. And the music, not, it, I don't even say the word blended, but it is uh, multivocal, I would say, Matt, that, that inside one worship you might have a puppet show, you might have tap dance, and you might have classical music, and you might have jazz, or you might have gospel music, or you might have Michael Jackson. We will worship by any means necessary. Oh, I love it. Is it. How does this jibe with the tradition that you were raised in, Jackie? Are you, did you come from a tradition, a church, a church home, church family that, um, brought, that weaved in a lot of different styles? Or is, it something, is that something you grew into as a pastor? That's a great question. My dad and mom were in the Air Force um, when I was young, young. So that means we went to these kind of non-denominational, non-descript churches that I would say didn't really have a culture. Um, but my, when we got out of the service and we were now in Chicago, I went to this little beautiful church called Seventh Presbyterian. And it was in a neighborhood, Matt, that was um, transitioning, you know. Um, what neighborhood? It was uh, on the south side of Chicago, 86th and Sangamon. Uh, like, you know that, don't you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Because you're in Chicago. And, and right at that moment in time, take a snapshot, and there was, you know, uh, Reva Dixon, a college student doing gospel music with us. Uh, Mrs. McGuire, an old Irish lady on the organ, teaching us classical music. So we sang everything from songs from Hair or Jesus Christ Superstar to whatever the pop music was then, Stevie Wonder, to, you know, classical stuff from Handel. It was just a great, it, it went inside my bones mm. that... One, children and um, families um, needed to worship together with single folks, that there was an intergenerational amazing pull. Two, art and music held, held us all together, and we were diverse. And so I think of worship as a kind of play space um, in which you, uh, you inspire the both sides of the brain and, and the big heart with good uh, solid intellectual uh, preaching that that scratches the itch for learning and knowledge, and also worship that is um, playful or um, imaginative, creative. Do you, when you think back on that church and the years that you were there, yeah, was that amalgamation of style? intentional, or was it just a reflection of, of a transitioning neighborhood, or how, how did that church wind up in such a creative spot? That's a, just an excellent question, Matt. I think it was maybe more circumstance, you know, it was um, a window in time. Um, because the neighbor, I mean, that's, a, I, I can't help but sort of, yeah, yeah, I can't help but lament, I mean, as you know, I don't know if you still have family back here, or how tied into Chicago you are these days, but the the city is of course, just so dramatically segregated now that that it's very rare to find. There are multicultural churches, of course, but it's it, it's an act of sort of heroic intentionality rather than neighborhood 
demographics. I think, yeah, I think, you know, you're right. I thought you were going to see an act of um, defiance that too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, we were in a beautiful moment in time when that neighborhood was changing, but the white people were there and the, um, the black people were there, you know, Chicago so segregated. We didn't have anybody Latino, Latina in our neighborhood, like at all, you know, not at all. But, but that in terms of that biracial moment in time, and this is in the 70s, it was a beautiful experiment. Um, and, and I think it really changed my life, or at least it made me think. Think about the Air Force was a kind of integrated space. Then this space was an integrated space. So my formative years have me thinking about church as a space in which um, all kinds of folks uh, hang out together and and that looks like the reign of god or it looks like heaven and i think that childhood vision is one that i feel really called to uh to to continue to create when you stepped out of childhood and into the reality of you know the vast majority of churches in america uh was that a surprising experience for you to say oh wait a minute that that experience at seventh presbyterian was not the norm yeah, I was, and, and I had some, some of those experiences were deeply, deeply impactful, too. So the sort of new friendship missionary Baptist church that we went to in the black neighborhood, um, I, you know, I say I'm from the black church, too. I mean, just amazing passion and incredible music and uh, the kind of preaching art form of black preaching with the uh, you know, going low and rising high and a beautiful celebration at the end, that experience is in my body, in my bones, uh, as are some of the white churches that I visited when I was a young adult, uh, living in spaces that were like Rochester, New York, or Bay Area, California. You know, you're, you're, you're hopping around and you don't know what the church is until you get there. This is pre-Google. So... I went to all kinds of churches, Filipino churches, black churches, white churches, Latino churches, that, that are all pieces of cultural seeds that are planted in me. And I, I think I'm very grateful for that. But I do lament the absolute segregated nature of 11 o'clock still. Yeah. I have a PhD in psych and religion, Matt, and my dissertation is about leaders in multiracial churches. So I'm you know, steeped in books like uh, United by Faith that do studies about um, congregations around the nation and which ones are mixed and how they work and a kind of sense of biblical call to, to mix it up as much as we can. I really firmly believe that. Are the folks who are doing that well, is it, in your research, is it um, out of a, a, a real intentionality? Or again, I, I guess I'm asking the same question that I asked about your childhood church. Is it here the neighborhood's quite diverse, and so are churches, or are there pastors out there who are saying, no, this is what the kingdom of God looks like, therefore we're going to create a church that's reflective of it? Yeah, I think there's a growing sense of the latter. I mean, I think in a, in a country that is browning up, there are certainly denominational strategies and tactics to say, how do we keep up with that? There are certainly denominational uh, uh, strategies that say, what's well, make a Korean church and let's make a Latino church and that's how we're dealing with the browning up of America. But, but many of us, many of us, uh, I would say 
would used to be at a kind of a 7% number of congregations around the country has eased up to about 12%. Many of us are feeling like this is work that we're called to do, that we are called to do justice, especially justice work in multiracial uh, connectedness that, um, that I think, I think, yeah, I think it's purposeful. I know ours is. We, 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 we have Chinese people who get in their car and drive out of Queens and come down here to be in this place. Gay Isn't that great? Come to this place to be with straight people. Yeah. So there's something that there's a yearning for for a, a for safe spaces, safe enough spaces. Let's say it that way. Well, you said it in in your, in the sermon that you preached on the 25th of September. So just a couple of weeks ago, when we record this. Um, that's a very powerful sermon, and I want to ask you some particularity, some particular questions about um, its content. But one of the things that I felt in that sermon was a sense of lament um, around the fact that while the world is falling apart, while America is, you know, just just like the lie that we tell to ourselves that there's been great progress, that wounds are healed, you know, just as exposed and exposed and exposed for a lie. Um, meanwhile, you are living inside a church home that is um, actually the way things ought to be. Does that tension strike you? Like when you, I mean, in a way that must be painful, right? To step out, to, to be the leader of and be in the act working with God to create this place that is indeed reflective of the kingdom and yet um, have it be such an anomaly. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, I think the breaking in of God's reign, um, I'll, I'll mess with this parable, but maybe that's like a mustard seed that grows and grows and grows. I think it's, there's a, there's a fire catching, right? There's a fire catching around, the movement for Black Lives, with white allies jumping in, a group called Surge, and young folks marching with other young folks. There's a fire catching in, where like I know a Jewish rabbi who went to pull Muslims out of the water in Aleppo. Um, I think there's something breaking in because things have gotten to be so drastically desperate uh, in terms of polarization and anger and fear that. I would say it's the Holy Spirit breaking in that's, that's doing Pentecost moments with us, you know, um, where, where each of us is hearing the good news in our own language and, and at the same time standing in the midst of diversity and, and going, yeah, this kind of feels good. It kind of feels good to stand next to you and sing this hymn. It feels great to march with you uh, for justice. It feels awesome to feed people in the park with you. I, I can't describe the picture of our little babies making sandwiches and going to the park with their parents and how that looks like, you know, a mixed up bunch of lovely people. And and I don't think I'm the only congregation. So I think there's something tugging at our hearts. I wonder if a part of it is the increasing, you know, if, if there's a gift, there are many gifts in the increasing marginalization of the church in the U.S. And perhaps one of the things that you're experiencing or describing is, is the result of one of those gifts where rather than the church needing to be reflective of the broader culture or feeling like it has to be anyhow, the church can once again be this countercultural community that points towards something else, right? That is, in fact, an inbreaking, as you're saying, that is not 
simply a, a sort of spiritual gloss on the broader culture. Because um, be, I think you'd be hard-pressed these days to find a Protestant Christian who feels that, in the mainland church, that who feels that, yeah, uh, my tradition or my church are, is really at the center of things. Right. So in your own journey, in your own experience, um, are you a... Pre- Middle Collegiate is a, an RCA congregation, is that right? Right. right. So, I'm a Presbyterian. Okay, yeah. so, so there's a lot of affinity between those two denominations, I think. Is that right? Yes. Do you same feel your... Oh, go ahead. No, it's the same polity. Mm-hmm. And theologically similar too, right? I mean, do you feel yourself as a preacher in the Reformed tradition? Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, I feel myself as a preacher in the Reformed tradition, especially in the reformed and constantly reforming tradition. Um, I think middle collegiate church is left of the RCA um, and maybe even left of much of the PC USA. Um, and I'm maybe left of, of much of all of that. Now left, do you mean left theologically or left uh, from, a social, from a social sort of political place or both of those things? Yes. Yes, both of those things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How old were you when you were at Seventh Presbyterian? Was that in your adolescence? No, I was. Uh, I actually took communion for the first time at that church. Uh, so I was like seven, eight, nine, seven, seven years old through about twelfth uh, grade. It was a good long stint there. Oh, that's great. So, did you stick with the with the PCUSA then, um, like on, on your journey toward ordination? I did. I got ordained in the PCUSA. I served. Um, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary. And um, started a new church called Imani in Trenton. Imani Church means faith in Swahili. And um, did, did uh, work also in a kind of blended ministry with this really smart woman named Patty Daly. Uh, just like, let's be three clergy serving four churches, which is a wonderful collaboration. Um, so, yeah, I, I, and I, I stayed Presbyterian when I began to serve this church. Frankly, because the RCA um, was, it's a little slow on the LGBT thing um, for me. Yeah, they're not there yet, I don't think, are they? Not not quite. No, not quite. And just to be able to be both and, you know, to straddle this border, I I think I'm a little bit of a border person. So I'm happy to be in the Presbyterian Church and delighted to be serving as a senior minister here at Middle. It really is the best Use of my gifts ever in my life. I totally love my job. Isn't that a good feeling to feel deeply oh, at home in the church you serve? It's amazing. It's amazing. I feel like, do I really get paid to do this? Hmm. I was going back through some past interviews and I realized, so I've spoken with Serene Jones and um, two of your colleagues in the city. Uh, well, one's relatively new, Kaji Dosha and um, Donna Scopper. And now yes. you. It makes me realize, gosh, uh, these are, you know, four significant institutions in, in New York City, Protestant institutions, all of which are led by women. Um, is that... Amen. Have you thought Amen. about that? Is that... What, what do you think that's reflective of? I mean, that certainly wasn't the case 20 years ago. No, I think it's, re- I think it's reflective of the changing tide, and I think it's reflective of the avant-garde spirit of, of New York City. Um, and by the way, I just returned an email to Donna this morning saying that I'll come to her dinner party she's hosting for Kaji, who's moving back to New York. So oh, that's, these that's relationships great. with women uh, overlapping and interweaving with each other is beautiful. It's a good time to be a woman. It's not a perfect time to be a woman. Women still make about 70 cents on the dollar. 
to men, African-American women lower than that, but um, we're doing great. Yeah, it's great. I don't think we've reached any kind of tipping point. I have a lot of female clergy friends who are not, I mean, you, you've talked to Leslie Callahan. Mm -hmm. She's a friend. She's an awesome woman uh, pastoring her own church. But how many women have you talked to really across the nation who have their own churches? Still a lot of associates, still a lot of assistants, you know? Absolutely. And I try to strike a gender balance uh, with the guests on the podcast, and I have to dig harder to find women. I mean, I, my gosh, I know there are, uh, uh, you know, an endless number of really good women preachers, but I do have to look harder. Right. The... um. So you've been at, at Middle Collegiate for 12 years. Um, you've been a preacher for longer than that. How do you sustain, you have, the, like, you have a remarkably like energetic, engaging style in the pulpit. Um, and, and one feels when listening to your preaching that something is unfolding, that, that there is, um, you're, you know, that, that there's something dynamic and exciting happening either, you know, in the text or in the world that you're tapping into. There's a sense of like, enthusiasm in your preaching uh, that yes. one doesn't always hear in people who have been at it for decades. How do you sustain your own enthusiasm for the task? Well, that's just an awesome question. Um, honestly, Ned, I think that my biggest spiritual practice is prepping to preach and preaching. I, I just love it. Love it. Um, could I could... If, if someone said you could spend three, you know, seven hours, seven day weeks on preaching I, and just all you had to do is preach, you just spend that much time in the, in the sermon, I would. I love the word study. I love the ancient languages. I love thinking about the culture of the time and making connections between now and then. I just love it. I think it is the most precious, priceless job that clergy have. And I take it very seriously. How do I make, keep it interesting for myself? Um, I love to. I love to think about preaching as storytelling, like I'm a griot, you know. Mm. And so I'm. There's this biblical story, and then there's the story of the world, uh, nation, globe, the story of the people in the congregation, the individual stories that I know in my one-on-ones, my meetings with people. And I feel like what I'm doing is weaving those stories together and looking for the underside, the upside down, the different way to think about it. Um, what is the commentary not saying? What, you know, what, what is not being said there? Uh, and, and how can I excavate that? So part of what unfolds is my own surprise. I try to give the congregation the same ride I've been on. Guess what? I never thought about this this way. I never thought about the prodigal father as setting up a house that's really a container that's like a womb where these two boys can be themselves. Oh, wow. And so how can we mimic that? You know, like, what's the, what's the unsaid thing? Let's sit with that for a second. <laughs> um, and and, and uh, to our listeners, I, I encourage you to go to the Middle Collegiate website and listen to this sermon from the 25th of September 2016. Um, so the story, the text for the day is the story of the prodigal son. And Jackie, you, you just kind of cut to the heart of what you had to say, but, but from the listener's experience, from my experience, um, I'd never heard the story interpreted that way. You yeah. focus on the father, not 
immediately, not in an immediately sort of belabored sense at least, as the figure of God in the story, but rather, again, as a, as a patriarch of a family um, and as someone who has created a home that allowed the younger brother yeah. to split, oh, right? That, that, didn't come out of, that didn't come out of nowhere. He, um, he yeah. was raised in a place that allowed him to wander and, and to be himself and, to, and, to, put, and to, to stray, but also maybe to, you know, to be his own person. Um, yes. And you talked that, you know, and you say, you have this beautiful line. There was a father who had two sons. They yes. were not alike. And he <laughs> loved them both. Yeah. That yeah. is what home is. Um, so when in your own reading of the text, mm-hmm. uh, did you get to that angle as a result of, oh, I've preached on this a thousand times, and so what's some new way to look at it? Or are you, is that kind of how you read? Some people look at the world through sort of a, I mean, poets do this, right? Kind of sideways. And then you see things that other people don't. Is that typical for you to, to, to crack open a story like that? Or was that something that was, I don't know, you know what I mean? Was that something that, that took a long time to get to that way of looking at that particular story? I think, I think a, little of, a little of two things, maybe a little of one thing and a lot of the other. Certainly, um, you and I read these texts, we've read these texts, we've preached these texts. Um, for my own self, Matt, for my own intellectual curiosity, for my own heart search, for my own spiritual journey, um, you know, the word I'm living with right now is heuristic. What is another thing this thing can teach me? I I might be reading every text with that first. What's Mm. another thing that this text can teach me that I haven't heard in it yet? What is its new song? What is its new vocabulary? And so I'm always, always, always reading the scripture like that. I, I pick texts months in advance, oftentimes, and so you read it then, and then you, you know that, and you maybe come back to it when you're thinking about music, and you, you store that. And then the, the kind of that last 10 days, I'm looking at the text and going, show me something that I don't know. But, you know, show off for me text. What do you got in there? And, like, I love the, the quote that preaching is truth through personality. So I am a human being standing on the earth today, Standing on the earth today where differences are are cause of death, right? Cause of death, Matt. And so, of course, my ear is listening for difference in this text. Um, The second thing that's causing my ear to listen is it's homecoming. What does this text say about home? Um, It's... It's so beautiful to then make the father a real person. Sometimes I thought, well, where's the mom? Well, we don't know, but the dad's there. And what kind of dad is this? What kind of real human being dad is this? Whose household is such that a boy who is not yet uh, deserving inheritance at all, a boy with no power, the least powerful, can ask the father to give him what he needs, what he wants. And the father does it. What kind of father is it that loves this other son, this more entitled son, this, you know, um, I, I should inherit it son, this steady son, to love him too. And that made me say there's something about the nature of the father that's a homemaker. And then that made me think, oh, wow, okay. 
and my psych stuff comes in, you know, I, I think about Donald Winnicott. I think I quote him in the sermon. Yeah. That, and that all of us are raised in these wombs, the arms of our parents, the, the homes of our parents that are containers for us to grow. The leadership people have picked that sense up of a holding environment that allows us to grow and change. So then I started thinking about his holding environment. And could we be then like God? We who are the body, can we create holding environments where the difference is celebrated, where there's elasticity, where there's space, you know, where there's grace. And, so that, and you contrast that in the sermon, drawing on Winnicott, you say, you know, a good enough home is going to produce a good enough person. Um, and then you say, you know, America as our home is not good enough, right? I mean, we're, we're not producing good enough people. Uh, we're hurting our, We're hurting ourselves. We're hurting our children. Um, and then, again, this kind of leads back to that earlier question I asked about the contrast between the experience you're having in church and, mm-hmm. uh, and the experience then of being an American citizen. But then you say, here at Middle Collegiate, we can be that home. Um, yep. and, right. and, and be at the vanguard of, of, of what that kind of home ought to look like. So, so you're, you're drawing on all these, you know, like all good preachers on this multiplicity of levels, right? So you're, you're, you're preaching to the particular... Sunday in your particular congregation. So it's homecoming Sunday. So I'm going to reflect on the theme of home. You've got the text, of course. You're looking at what's going on uh, in the broader culture. And then you're bringing in your non-biblical expertise, uh, your study of Donald Winnicott. So um, it's all these different things, right? And you said earlier, like, that's your role as storyteller is to, is to, to weave them in and hold them together. There's a way in which that's very Calvin, right? I mean, yes. that, that, that the world is, is shot, you know, God is sovereign and, and therefore um, available in a sort of universal way, right? Not, not limited, not arrested. Um, right. It made me think of the, the first line of that terrific uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Do you think, though, that I sometimes wonder as a preacher if we're, if we're, if we're operating out of that assumption, I share it, that also Scripture itself can then become, I don't know, one voice among many rather than a criterion or, do you know what I mean? If, if God is speaking through everything, why are we paying such careful attention to the, this one particular way that God is speaking? I mean, I think that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I think we should be paying particular attention to it because these 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 books, this this thing we call scripture, has lasted, uh, stood the test of time. That there's a kind of um, unalterable truth in them, in the words there. I don't say inerrant. That's not where I live and breathe. I think that. It is more like script for life, feminists might say. And I think we need to pay attention to the words and the context. And I think we need to pay attention to the words and the words of people paying attention to the words. Jewish people get this better than we got it. They've got, they've got the text. They've got the you know, rabbi speaking in 892. And they've got the rabbi speaking in 1200. And they've got the rabbi speaking, you know. Yeah. And they and all on the same page in the book are all of these conversations about this word. And then you join the conversation. So I think I realize that I'm in a, I'm in a conversation 
a conversation with God, with God's word, with, with those who've read the word before and bothered to write it down with Fred Craddock and you know whoever all these commentators are that I love. Then, and then I'm in conversation, Matt, with the people in my congregation who will know the text I'm reading. They'll know it because we let them know, but they're also just having a life. They're having a life. And part of what I exegete is their life. Mm-hmm. That's my job. My job is to exegete the culture and to exegete their life and put those all in conversation with these words, which are also, by the way, exegesis of a life. When the psalmist writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's interrogating his life. He's exegeting his life. When John says, God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them, he's exegeting his community. Here's what I notice. Those who live in God live in love. And that's that's a kind of a synonym, right? Love and God are synonyms. So let's not act like the people who went before us weren't doing what you and I do. The canon just is closed now, right? They're, they're trying to figure it out. You are just as anointed with Holy Spirit when you're in your studio or wherever you write as I am and as they were, I think, seeking God's face. And I, I think I don't have such a feeling like the Bible sits apart from us. I think it sits inside us. And that it itself is reflective of or the product of an experience that the human experience, right? I mean, that's... The, that's right. Yeah. The um, That's an interesting way to look at it. And I think one of the things that, that it does in... If I if I get it right, is so part of what you see didn't use this phrase, but part of what you said is like the scripture is sort of battle tested, right? I mean, it's been helpful to people um, as a script for life for such a long time that the proof is in the pudding at some level, uh, but that also it's not this thing that is divorceable from the experience that you're having today or that the folks in your congregation are having today that they're going to bring into worship on Sunday morning, that these That's things right. are, are woven together. That's exactly right. That's a, I think that we can tend to approach Scripture. I mean, I, I think that the sort of post-Enlightenment scientific reading of the Bible has done such harm to, um, to Protestants that, you know, it either needs to be more, you know, more scientific than science itself from sort of a fundamentalist perspective, or it needs to be kind of outdated myth from a very liberal sense. And I like what you're espousing that it's true, right? But it's true in the same way that one, that, that one's lived experience is true. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, if we can just spend another minute there, I wouldn't want anyone listening to think I'm I'm squashing the importance of the of the bi- biblical text. I actually love the Bible, uh, and all of us create a canon from that canon. You do, and so do I. Everyone does. The texts we're drawn to, the texts that really resonate with us. I force myself to preach the lectionary so I won't just preach, you know, Romans 8 over and over again or Psalm 139 over and over again. Um, but, but we have to acknowledge that God has to still be speaking. 
if God wasn't still speaking, if we didn't look at the text with a lifting up the new word, the sideways word, the fresh word, I'm a woman, and someone will be telling me I can't speak in church. Yeah. Uh, I'm a black woman. And someone might say, you know, obey your masters. So we know that we redact, and we know that we edit, and we know that we push back, and we know that we interpret, and we know that we free ourselves. When I go get a cheeseburger, um, I'm, I'm freeing myself from what it means to be kosher. So I just think I want, I, I think clergy could be more honest with their congregants about how that's a human being experience. Absolutely. And that, again, to say that God is fixed in the literal words of the Bible is right. to really stop God's freedom, right? And exactly. who are we to do that? Um, Not our job. <laughs> one of my favorite ways of, of getting at the, you know, what I see as the truth of the Bible, but also stopping myself from doing what you just said, you know, preaching from the, the Matt Fitzgerald's selected favorites from the Bible um, over and over again is this great Luther quote where he says, you know, when, when, the, when scripture is, is quoted against Christ, we must use Christ against the scripture. And so just to have that, uh, that lens through which to read the Bible, through the lens of the love of God, uh, yeah. because obviously there are things in Scripture that are contrary to the love of absolutely. God. Absolutely, absolutely. How does your background in psychology and your academic work in that field influence your preaching? How does my psychology influence my preaching? Yeah, your awareness of these categories and these thinkers and, and that way of understanding what it is to be human. Yeah, I think more than the awareness of the thinkers, the, the thought leaders, let's say, although certainly that's like I might be having a conversation with Fred Craddock and I'm also having a, con a, a conversation with, you know, um, Eric Erickson, right? You yeah. know, but more than that, I think it's a way of being like a person who's a gardener might have a way of being that would put rich metaphors in their head. I'm a psychologist type person, I have a way of being. I'm a musician type person, so that's a way of being. And I think the, the way you be is, is etches into your personality something, and that I think impacts the way you preach. So as a person who, who thinks psychologically and, and looks at the world that way, um, how... What is that? What is that? What unique sort of gift does that give you in the pulpit? How how are you bringing that in? Um, I'm bringing it in in a couple of ways. Like I can't remember the last time I said Winnicott. I think I said Winnicott on the 25th of September, and I maybe haven't said it for a couple of years. Okay. Yeah. But this Sunday I preached a sermon called Shelter, and I'm talking about God being sheltered for us, but us being sheltered for each other. Mm. What comes to the pulpit with me is not just intuition, but let's say a psychological analysis, a psychodynamic analysis of the loneliness in the congregation, of the disenfranchisement in the congregation, of the way race mattering in America so much makes people treat my staff accidentally, not as well as they could if they were all white and powerful. I mean, I got all of that going on. And I might not say, as you can imagine, because of the race dynamics in America, you know, if you walk past my 
black staff person, he, he might have a feeling about that. I don't have to say all of that, but that's all making the sermon the sermon. Yeah. All of that is making the sermon. The psychodynamics of race in America is making the sermon the sermon. Shame, fear, Trump's crap, excuse my language, is making, is, is, is being looked at psychologically and theologically when I'm preaching. So that's, that's how it comes in the room. Just like for you, all of the things you love, clearly poetry, um, comes in the room with you. Yeah, I think that's, that's terrific. And, and, uh, and that's exactly right. I mean, I often think like, whatever I'm leaving on my bedstand, whatever I'm reading is going to be there with me. In the yeah, it is. My sense of, of, psycho, of, of getting a, in that way, one thinks that they, if their partner knows something, they know it. Um, my sense of, 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 as I've grown to understand psychodynamic theory a little bit more in that way of looking at people, it's made me a more compassionate preacher because you understand people suffering at a deeper level than, um, I mean, that's one of the things that, that to my mind, psychoanalysis does so well is it, um, it diagnoses the sort of tragedy of existence in a way. And then as a preacher, you can see the need for grace even more clearly. Um, so I love, I love that dimension of your preaching. I think it comes through really, really clearly. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, Jackie. Oh, I really so, appreciate it. You're so welcome, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Elizabeth Palmer.